the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Cross the Margins, proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com. Check out the eclectic and growing grouping of arts and culture and music podcasts they have to offer. That is OsirisPod.com. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you an interview I recorded with Ed Vuliami, former reporter for The Guardian and for The Observer. He is the author of A Mexica, War Along the Borderline, and also The War is Dead, Long Live the War, Bosnia, The Reckoning. His latest book, Louder Than Bombs, which is the focus of this episode, is part memoir, part reportage, and is a story of music from the front lines. In Louder Than Bombs, Bulyami offers a testimony to his lifelong passion for music. His reporting has taken him around the world to cover the Bosnian War, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism, the Iraq Wars of 1991 and 2003 and onward, narco violence in Mexico, and more. All places where he confronted stories of violence, suffering, and injustice. And through it all, Bulyami has turned to music, not only as reprieve, but also as a means to understand and express the complicated emotions that follow. Describing the artists, songs, and concerts that most influenced him, in Louder Than Bombs, Fuliyami unites the two largest threads of his life, music and war. Fuliyami's book is a wildly exciting and informative journey that covers some of the most important musical milestones of the past 50 years. From Jimi Hendrix playing Machine Gun at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970, to the Bataclan in Paris, under siege in 2015. Vuliami was present for many of these historical moments, and with him as our guide, we see them afresh through his unique perspective, along the way meeting musicians like B.B. King, Graham Nash, Patti Smith, and Bob Dylan. As Vuliami discovers, when horror is unspeakable and when words seem to fail us, we can turn to music for expression and comfort, or for rage and pain. Poignant and sensitively told, Louder Than Bombs is an unforgettable record of a life bursting with music. In this episode, Ed and I converse upon the cathartic power of music while waxing poetically as well as we can about the ways musicians channel and give birth to music. We explore an unforgettable meeting Ed had with B.B. King. He recounts the importance of a band called the Plastic People of the Universe around the fall of the Berlin Wall. We celebrate Graham Nash's aim to change the world through music and a whole lot more. Ed, as you will hear, is a gracious and kind human being who's lived an extraordinary life. And you get a taste of that life. And you'll come to know real quick how passionate Ed is about music and how grateful he is for all the experiences he's had with music in his life. I have no doubt you're going to love this interview with Ed Williami. Cross the margin. Thank you for coming on the program. It's an honor to have Look, you here. It's, it's an honor. It's um, my honor. My honor is all mine. Louder than bombs. It's it's a, your book. It's a voyage. It's truly tremendous. It takes you a lot of places. Uh, 
it, all over the world and, and all these diverse and brilliant musicians are present in the book. It's kind of a bit challenging to know where to begin. So I figure I'd commence where you did, um, amid a massacre in Sarajevo, where through some very trying circumstances, uh, to say the least, a trio of musicians played on. You mentioned how this inspired the book this afternoon. I'd like to just ask, how so? Well, yes, look, thanks for having me on. The honor's all mine. And it's also very kind of you to put it that way and to mm. call it an adventure. Um, yeah, it is. The editor, Max Porter, who's also a very good author, when he, when he saw the draft or the proposal, he said, this is a wonderful mess. <laughs> and, um, and um, well, it's a very, a very, very, you know, I mean, half of that is a compliment. The other half, I'm not so sure whether it, whether it's still a mess or not, is up to the reader. Um, yes, it's an adventure. That's because my my life has been both an adventure and a mess. Mm. And um, um, whether it's been wonderful is not really for me to judge yet. But mm. uh, but but um, <clears throat> I think yeah, the that moment in Sarajevo was. Um, well, you know, the, the context is that one was trying to write about um, an indescribable war. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't a war; it was a genocide. It right. was a, it was, um, you know, it was a baptism of, of, of sort of fire. Well, it wasn't quite baptism because I had reported warfare before, mm. but one was encountering levels of human suffering, human resilience, physical violence, um, cruelty, and pain that one, you know, would much rather die without knowing about, to be honest. And, you know, I was as a journalist having to try and find a vocabulary for all this. Um, Whether one succeeded or not is another matter. That that is in other books I've written. (laughs) Um, But the moment that that a shell hit the theatre or fell sufficiently close to the theatre, they were trying to play a Haydn piano trio transcribed for strings because the cellist in the quartet had been killed on the way to a rehearsal. So the Sarajevo string quartet was reduced to the Sarajevo string trio and a shell landed sufficiently close to the theater to, to make the viola players music stand fall over. And it was this awful moment. What, what happened? What do we do now? Um, and, um, when the lead violinist called the number of the bar, and just sort of signaled for the trio to continue playing Haydn um, when, the, when the score had been restored to the music stand, was a moment which no words could describe. It said more about war, more about resilience against war, more about the cogency of music in such circumstances than any words could say. Um, and, uh, I mean, what was happening, it was sort of, you know, sort of to hell with you, we're trying to play Haydn, could you please just leave us alone <laughs> for the time it takes to play a, tr- to play a trio, uh, you barbarians. Um, but, you know, n- nothing I could write could, could describe the, the, the period of seconds between the falling of the stand, the restoration of the stand, of the stand, the restoration of the score on the stand, and the continuation of this beautiful lago by Haydn, um, interrupted by a shell, by an artillery shell, um, and I just, I think, I think, 
think that's when I thought, you know, um, Ed, you know, you've got to carry on filing about Waterkeep massacres and children having their limbs blown off mm-hmm. now. Um, but one day, try and write about that which cannot be written about. By definition, it will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but have a go and see what happens. Um, and so, you know, the book came together really as a mixture of um, reportage specifically for it, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in that endeavor, mm-hmm. recollection of things that would happen before that moment, mm-hmm. and um, actually sort of raiding stuff I'd done for the paper where, where, you know, a lot of the good stuff had hit the floor because mm-hmm. it wasn't the kind of thing that works in a book mm-hmm. where you can... Um, you know, uh, 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 you know, my, my employers, for their own perfectly uh, laudable reasons, you know, did not want uh, long passages about Dmitry Shostakovich's obsession with soccer. Um, <laughs> you know, I happen, I, I happen to think it's incredibly interesting <laughs> that he was obsessed by soccer and kept these nerdy notebooks of scorers and scores uh, and, and who, you know, referees and so on. Um, I love that uh, chapter uh, about uh, Dmitry too. So, well, it's completely insane, yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and 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 you know, my life has been insane. The it war is, is insane, mm. and, uh, and and um, you know, if you if you if you read enough Samuel Beckett, you'll come to think that actually existence itself is pretty insane. Mm. But music, but music is not. Music is cogent. Mm. Music has meaning, and everybody knows that music has meaning. Mm. And, and 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 what 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 that meaning is, we don't really know necessarily. But I just wanted to sort of explore the idea of music in war, music during war, music against war, um, uh, well, occasionally music for war, uh, but that, that was a difficult bit to write. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, you just, just I, I mean, I think, you know, those people of my age associated, you know, a whole era of music in the 60s and 70s with what we now call the peace movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wanted to explore all that. What actually do we mean? You know, what was Jimi Hendrix doing mm. at Woodstock? Um, what was that trio in Sarajevo doing for the people who'd come to hear them? What was that trio in Sarajevo doing by holding the concert in the first place during a siege? Um, what, what, what were the people doing coming to listen to Haydn? Most of them probably didn't even know who Haydn was. Um, and had never heard Haydn before, but felt they had to be there. Why? And above all, what was it that made them play on under shellfire? Yeah, well, I mean, there was that quote right in that chapter that kind of uh, brought it home to me, and I found it inspiring that the music was organized not so as to belittle what was happening, but to remind themselves they are still alive. And that was just beautiful. It speaks, Absolutely. Yeah, it speaks to how music Absolutely. is leaned on in life as catharsis, as proof of life and proof of beauty amid horror. And I was wondering, and just kind of the book as you go through, and, and you know, you described very well how you know it's, it's conceit and everything, but it really felt uh, at its core uh, a love letter to music, like an ode to the power of music. Am, am, I, am I hitting the mark there? Well, thank you for calling it that, Michael. I mean, because that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people need uh, uh, the, the nutrition, mm. the, 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 the aural, spiritual, aesthetic nutrition of music mm. um, in life anyway. But yeah. they need it all the more in times of tribulation. And, and the editor, you know, went through the hard yards. You know, are we trivializing? the deaths 
of all those people in, in Sarajevo mm-hmm. by writing only about a string trio and later in the book about um, a concert of Sevda music, Bosnian traditional Sevda folk music. Um, the answer basically was given by the people themselves. You know, before the war, we were plumbers and carpenters and art students and, 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 um, and just people living our lives. We didn't cease to become that because our city was attacked. Mm-hmm. We, needed, um, we needed music more than ever. Um, and, you know, I applied that again to, to there's, a, there's a very difficult, you know, chapter to get right about uh, music under the Third Reich, mm. music tolerated by the Third Reich, music encouraged by the Nazis in the concentration camp at Terezin. Um, question, are we trivializing, are we sort of, um, not trivializing, but are we, are, we, are we omitting too much to deal with music in a in a death camp, under the under enduring the the Shah, the Nazi Holocaust. Well, no, because because the people in in that camp playing and listening to the music needed to play and hear it. Um, it made them feel who they really were. Um, I human. think the point about exactly, mm. exactly human in the noblest sense, and mm. also human in the sense of who they actually were, because yeah. because. You know, I think it's very important. I learned this as a war reporter. People don't want to be defined by the circumstances they are. They are. They are driven Absolutely. to yep. by the extremity of war and persecution. Mm-hmm. You know, a Holocaust survivor or victim is not just a Holocaust survivor or victim. You know, her name is Zedranka. Her name is it's, his name is Ivan. You know, or Moishi. Um, and and those people played and loved music so that music sort of in a way um and 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 the survivors of the terrorism camp and the the survivors of the siege of leningrad said the same thing music reminded us of who we were uh, before this was inflicted on us um you know it's sort of uh, i think a lot of us um during the past year have um have have been to too many zoom funerals and I think the message that comes across with all the people we've lost to COVID, and I've lost several friends, um, is that you know people people's lives cannot be defined by their death, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. nor can people's um, uh, identity during tribulation, during war, be defined by those awful conditions imposed on them. They remain who they are, and music, for some reason, and that's the that's the alchemy, that's the great mystery of music, as a way of doing that more than anything else, along with probably uh, uh, family and romantic love. Um, well, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said there. And you did talk about, you just mentioned the mystery of music. Makes me think of something I want to ask, because uh, I just love um, chapter two, the depth it goes. It's it's the one, that, chapter that starts with Santana and then, then kind of speaks generally and deeply about the origins of music and uh, delves into... Um, the ancient Greeks seeing music as as divine and um, expressing of the cosmos, and it talks about uh, um, Mozart and music as divine inheritance. And there's uh, mentions about um, you know how uh, the cultures, African cultures, Mesoamerican cultures, Native American cultures, how they look at um, the divine origins of music too. And I'd love to hear your personal takes because I just think about this uh, a whole lot. Um, you know uh, about the origins of music. It just that was such a that was such a deep chapter and one that also spoke to the power of music that we're talking about right now. 
Well, thank you, Michael, because, I mean, well, exactly. I mean, again, by definition, um, you know, what, one cannot answer your question. I mean, we don't know. That, that's the whole point. I just wanted to start the conversation um, about it. It's so many cool aspects to talk well, about. Well, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. But, well, I mean, you know, we don't know really mm-hmm. what, what music is, and we don't know why it does what it does to us. Uh, we know that it does, yep. but we don't know why or how. Um, and one can explain these things with the physics of, of a wave of sound, and one can explain these things with the how the brain works and how the ear works, mm-hmm. and um, you know how a, what a what a sonic wave is, and all sorts of things. Um, and that, that's neither right nor wrong. I mean, that that is what happens. Those are the facts. Um, but um, it, it, I mean, there is a, there is a there is a, a, a terminological connection between the muses and the word music. Um, Pythagoras believed that music was the sound of the celestial spheres. Mm. That music was actually made by um, the, the the physics of space, if you like. Uh, um, and um, who, who's going to say he's wrong? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a brave, it's a brave man or woman who gets up and says, Pythagoras, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, 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 huge numbers of people on the planet, um, you know, believe that when that, that on the morning Christ was born, there was a choir of angels first heard by a group of shepherds. Well, you know, I do not, I, I, I cannot find the arrogance in me to say, oh, how, don't be so stupid. How, how could that possibly happen? I don't know. Um, um, and uh, you know, it's 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 uh, 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 music. It, inevitably, people 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 think of it as a, as, a, as a divine, as a divine. What is it? It's an element, a divine thing. Um, and that isn't just an ancient view. I mean, that's why I opened the chapter with Carlos Santana because um, you know he he believes this passionately. Yeah. Um, and he's Carlos Santana. Yeah. He's not. He's not some ancient Greek philosopher. I heard him uh, talking about. Believe- he, he was talking with um, uh, the guitarist from the band Fish, um, Trey, and uh, he was talking about the yeah. ho- the hose and how the music is like water rushing through you, and musicians' function is that of a hose. And you know, their their idea is they're they're watering a sea of flowers, being the audience. But the point being is that he believes music is flowing through you. You aren't creating it. And the best thing you can do sometimes is to kind of just get out of the way of it. And I, I always thought that was beautiful, you know, just that they were a channel to something deeper, you know, who knows, but it's just beautiful. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you. Of course, of course, the, the awful thing about writing a book is all, all, all the bits you really want to be in it. You mm. hear, you hear all that after, after the yeah. um, and, and, and now, now I'm just thinking, damn it, why didn't Santana say that to <laughs> me? But he didn't. But I, I think, I think I got, I got the equivalent line about cherry blossom. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I mean, he's he's wonderful. I mean, he's a he's a poet uh, with his guitar, mm. and he is a poet in the way he speaks about why he plays the guitar. Um, uh, that's Santana. Um, uh, uh, you know, we can, we, we're trying to talk about music, not God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I work in a profession where almost all journalists, I mean, most of them at least, you know, have a, a sort of relative disdain for religion mm-hmm. and invariably a total disdain for soccer. Mm-hmm. And I always say, well, look, hang on a minute. We're trying to record the human race. That's what we're paid for. Yeah. I mean, the two things that 95% of the people in the world do is believe in God and watch soccer. Yeah. Um, and, if, and if they're in the United States, they'll watch baseball and basketball. Well, you know, not <clears throat> for, for, for the same reason. Um, 
Santana's he, he may he may he may he may not be exactly right in his view of of of, of sort of music is, is 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 a creation of God, but you know who's going to say he's wrong? Yeah. Olivier Messiaen would be the great um, sort of. Uh, uh, Equivalent in classical music, you know. I mean, mm. uh, you know, he's regarded as a as a as an innovator, um, part of what would be called the modern movement in music. Mm. Um, very much, you know, a creature of the 20th century. But uh, he had he was unequivocal about the fact that um, he thought music was divine. And thank you for sort of invoking. Um, Afro-spirituality, yeah. especially Native American mm-hmm. spirituality, oh, yeah. because, you know, to them, to, 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 to the original Americans, um, the purpose of music was divine, yep. um, as well as its origin. I mm-hmm. mean, it was... Uh, music was long um, before it was anything else. <laughs> well, yes, I, I always love the story of the Cocopelli, which I think I include in the book, whereby... Uh, um, the, the the one thing that the that the evil spirits or the two things the evil spirits were really scared of were the cockapelli's laughter mm-hmm. and the cockapelli's playing of the flute. Mm-hmm. Um, they just they couldn't bear it. It was a way to to clear the air mm-hmm. with music and laughter. I, it's I, it all makes sense to me. Um, we can't go any further. I need I need to ask. Uh, he he just kind of rang that bell about that question when you said poet with a guitar um you uh you were up front for Jimi hendrix at the isle of, of white uh pretty famous show yeah, well, um I, to sim- I need to simply ask how was that well um i yeah, i just i mean it's, it's it's quite something it's quite something to be able to say that I was born in the street on which Jimi hendrix yeah. died which yeah. is it, it just so happens to be true um well, yes, there are a few advantages to being 66 years old and uh, even fewer if we were to reconvene this conversation in 10 years' time. But, mm. but among those few advantages um, is to be able to say that your first, the first concert your parents took you to was to see Louis Armstrong Amazing. and that um, shortly after my 16th birthday, I heard Jimi Hendrix. Um, yes, 400,000 people at the Isle of Wight Festival it's sort of the mind boggles to think of the bill now in retrospect. Yeah, sort of Leonard Johnny Cohen. Miles Davis, at the Who, Leonard Cohen, yeah. John Byers, Jeff Rattal, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, who wasn't there yeah. apart from Dylan, pretty much everybody. Yep. He'd been there the year before, mm-hmm. but I wasn't allowed to go because I was too young. Yeah. Um, um, yes, we, we wove our way to the front. We weaved our way to the front. Mm-hmm. Just to just to be there, just to gawp and stare, because uh, he was really who those four hundred thousand people had come to hear and see. And um, I'll never forget it. How could I? He got up. They introduced Billy Cox on bass, Mitch Mitchell on drums, and the man with the guitar. And on he came, wearing bedazzling orange and purple silk. And um, I think he played for. One, one can probably on YouTube nowadays time it exactly. I haven't tried. I don't really want to. Um, yeah. He must have played for hours. Um, it sort of felt like an eternity and it felt like 30 seconds. Um, I do remember the silence hurting my ears when it finished. Um, Joe 
Joan Baez came on afterwards, and boy, did we need it! Yeah. Like a cool, <laughs> like a cool drink in the desert. Perfect palate um, cleanser. Yeah, it was um, it was bedazzling. Um, people, you know, sort of uh, people who think they know everything say, "Oh, it wasn't one of his best gigs." Oh no, he was much better here or there. But I mean, I, to be honest, I don't care. Yeah, um, <laughs> sounded pretty good to me. Yeah. Um, and, and the core of the of the performance was his um, his terrifying anthem of the era, Machine Gun, yeah, yeah, which was um, sort of about ostensibly Vietnam, mm. but it was about kind of everything. In fact, I think in the book I quote one of his introductions to playing the song in Berkeley when he says, oh yeah, and this is all about war and people finding war within themselves. I mean, this is mental violence, this is physical violence, and it's a terrifying depiction of both. Um, and um, one was sort of still slightly recovering from the concert 18 days later when I got on the bus after school and bought the evening paper and the front page said, Jimi Hendrix dead or died. <clears throat> and I read a few paragraphs down the story to find out that he had died in the street that I'd been born on, one block away from where my parents had since moved. Um, these were the days before social media when I went up to <clears throat> write and chalk my little tribute on the pavement, kiss the sky, Jimmy. There was nobody there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't be the case now. Yeah. Um, it really showed yes, what it meant to you, though, I, I, that, that, that moment when you were kind of saying, saying your farewells yeah. and uh, thank yous, which is... It, Pretty intense. That must have been kind of surreal finding that out soon after you just saw him. Thank you, Michael. Yes, because it, it, it was yeah. a thank you. I think I think Hendrix, um, along with Dylan, and in a different way, the Beatles <clears throat> had an influence on um, on on music, um, unlike anybody else, really. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely. With, uh, complete transgression. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was. <clears throat> somebody said, you know, he was too black for Greenwich Village and too white for Harlem. Yeah, for Harlem, correct. Um, you know, he was too he was too far out there for the blues, but he was too bluesy for the psychedelics. You know, I mean, it was um, he didn't belong anywhere. I love um, uh, how you really point out how um, varied his influences were, from Bach to Beethoven to flamenco music. I mean, he he wanted to be known as kind of the Paganini of the guitar, as you pointed out, and it was just it was really interesting. And, you know, of course someone like Hendrix isn't going to be able to fit into anyone's box or its stereotype as, as you know, it, it's impossible to describe someone that genius, you know? Well, thanks. And also, but I mean, I think in a way, that's the point of the book. I mean, sure. I, I, I hope I hope the word genre doesn't appear in the book. Yes, um, no. <laughs> if I do, that's a, that's a terrible mistake. Yeah. It's my least favorite word in the English language along with brand. Everyone's, everyone's um, just trying to label but, things and it gets a little... Gets a little well, exactly. And, yeah. and the best thing to do with that is just ignore it. Yes. Um, yep. And Hendricks ignored it. Uh, this idea that you sort of... Um, that there has to be a sort of, you know, a kind of a frontier between sort of Bach and Hendrix or between you know, sort of Coltrane and, and, and um, Albanian wedding music. Why? Mm -hmm. uh, it's all music. And um, Hendrix, it, it, by pure coincidence, the apartment he rented in London was that in which George Frederick Handel had lived uh, two centuries before. And, um, and as soon as Hendrix uh, I, one, one of the, my favorite interviews in the, in the book, actually, is with Cathy Etching, who's the only woman that Hendrix ever lived with. I interviewed her twice mm -hmm. when she was in London. And um, the visit, and uh, she's from Australia. And 
she she there's a wonderful description of um when Hendrix found out about this, he went straight to the the HMB record store on Oxford Street and bought what he could. He bought Balthazar's Feast and the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And um Kathy Etching has a wonderful description of him sitting on the edge of the bed, uh, jamming along to handle. Uh sadly there's no uh, recording of that, but oh. the mind boggles, frankly. Oh, I was incredible. You know, we, we all we all know what Hendrix did to the Star Spangled to the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. But try 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 listening to I know that my Redeemer liveth on Handel's Messiah, and and try and imagine Hendrix yeah. <laughs> dealing dealing with that and mm-hmm. dealing with that in this way. Absolutely, and it was really interesting. The um, you, you had a great quote about Machine Gun. Um, I have it around here somewhere. Oh, it's uh, now that I know of warfare, which you certainly do, I know that machine gun is not just what war sounds like, it's what war feels like. And that just shows you how powerful yeah. a war anthem it really, really is. Um, so we kind of you know, right. touched on how challenging writing about music can be. Um, but the description of the day and night you uh, saw B.B. King is some of the most beautiful writing about uh, about music that I've come upon. I absolutely love that. So I just want to say bravo there, pretty much. But that was really that was really um, a fun chapter, getting to, to know B.B. King more. How the, that was, I mean, you had one of the final interviews with him uh, that was noted, and kind of how the butterfly style came to be, the, the history of the, the holler. Um, I can't believe you also got in an accident at the crossroads, the Robert Johnson crossroads. Um, that's crazy. But how was it um, when you conducted that interview with B.B. King? That must have been pretty special. Well, I mean, it, it, it was, well, it was, it was, it was the, the circumstances were insane. I mean, I was told on a Monday that if I could get to, to Indianola, Mississippi by Wednesday morning at Landrock, he might talk. Yeah. And um, I managed to kind of maneuver my way to sitting next to him. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think, what can't one learn from BB King? You know how long have we got? Um, <laughs> but, but but the but the um, but but I thought the most important thing really was, uh, I mean, you say what what was it like? Well, I mean, his his humility was in in itself humbling. Wow. Um, and the problem with you know my profession and many others is that there are too many people who think they're good at it. And, and this is a bad idea. Um, and one of the wonderful lines was, um, what was it? you know, the night I say I was good, that's when I know I got a stock, so I'll never be good enough. You know, um, That sort of quest for <clears throat> what is just out of reach, um, that is the difference between great artistry and good artistry. I mean, I think, you know, the sort of... Uh, he did actually end the second set of the night at about two o'clock in the morning, saying, "Not bad for an eighty-four-year-old, eighty-seven-year-old." Um, so he said, "Not bad," but um, he's sort of impatient. There's a story that isn't in the book, actually, that's quite like BB King. Um, it was told to me by the widow of uh, George Schulte, Valerie Schulte, <clears throat> a performance in Chicago of uh, Mahler's Symphony, and it was sort of one of those moments when I mean, the alchemy happens, you know, the magic all comes together, and everyone was fawning over him. Schulte was furious, you know, he completely fucked up the, p- the pianissimo in the second movement, furious with the, the one tiny mistake, you know, and, and you know, B.B. King's a bit like that. Um, 
this sort of refusal to to be satisfied with what you've with what you've done. Yes, I mean satisfied, yes, but but still, hung, you know, still it it's, it it can be better. It, should, it has to be better. It, it's never good enough. Yep. And um and and that was the that humility was itself humbling. He's a humbling man to be around. He's That's he's a huge figure, you know. Yes, in, um, in so many, so many. And of course, ways. you're touching. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I appreciate that you put the recommending recordings uh, in the back because because what this book also does is, is it offers a lot of uh, music discovery for me. Um, you know, a lot of the rock was in my wheelhouse, but I've been digging into uh, the classical, and I'm going to continue. I'm going to make a playlist of all those recommended recordings, really dive in. But I really loved, um, and I've heard of the band, but um, I, I never dove into them that much. But I love the chapter entitled uh fuck the wall as it uh dug into a, a band um and a movement that band was the plastic people of uh of the universe and that movement was the Vel velvet revolution yeah. um can you uh, uh to give a little taste of of what that whole thing's about can you tell us about the importance of the plastics well yeah thank well i'm glad if i mean if, if I've introduced you, you of all people to a, to a band, I know. No, um, I was, I was, I've, I've heard of them, but I just, the, I didn't realize how much was out there. I didn't, I, just, I need to know more, and I'm definitely already started my deep dive into them, which is great. Well, they, I mean, I, I think that sort of the thing about, I mean, you know, in, in part, mm -hmm. th this book is about music as a, as agent, yeah. you know, music as as a force. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to the American audience, you know. I mean, Oliver North was a convicted liar, but he said one thing that was true. He said the war in Vietnam is not lost in Vietnam, it's yep. lost on the campuses of the United States. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he has a point. Um, you know, it, uh, the, 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 the cogency of music in the peace movement that drained America's ability to fight that war was huge, and everybody agrees on that. So music as agency, well, I mean, you know, Lots of music urges revolutions and wants to see a revolution. And Jefferson Airplane sort of thought they, that one was, that was going to happen that certainly wasn't going to happen. Um, but um, the, the, the plastics kind of actually did start a revolution. Mm -hmm. At least they certainly had a very major part in it um, by basically pitching the surreality, the quirky humor, the ingenuity of their music, which was a sort of blend of. Velvet Underground meets jazz, meets avant-garde experimental music, meets Czech folk music, or bohemian folk music. And they basically fuse these things into an extraordinary sound that's not always easy to listen to, um, <clears throat> but which was so totally subversive of what the communist regime stood for that they were banned. And I mean, their concerts were attacked by the police and uh, fans were kind of clobbered over their head with truncheons at one point. And the, the, the two members of the band were jailed. And so there's a sort of thing, well, if the regime um, can't take it, there must be something in it. Uh, yeah. They must be doing something right. Yeah. Um, and um, this was how they saw it. And... Um, it, it wasn't just the musicians who saw this, the, the potential in this, it was also Václav Havel. And Václav Havel, who um, was the sort of leader of what became known as the Velvet Revolution against the communist regime in, in um, Czechoslovakia. Velvet, A, because it was, you know, it was non-violent. Yeah, softer, yeah. I.e. the Velvet Glove. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, a nod to the Velvet Underground. Um, and... Um, 
and uh, they played a very major part in that. I mean, their music sort of um, became not only a soundtrack to a, a movement of civil unrest that led to the downfall of communism in that country, but actually an agent of change. I mean, they they um, they, um, they you know they were they were not just the soundtrack; they were part of it. They they detonated it, they ignited it, they inspired it. Um, and also just by doing something, it wasn't even political music. I mean, they weren't. You know, Paul Cantner, look what's happening out in the streets. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was the, it was the actual sound they were making. Yeah. David and said, the quirkiness of they what said they were it doing. Was, uh, but, it was the politicians who made us political because they were offended by the music. Quite so. Yeah. And that's exactly right. <laughs> right. So in a way, what could be what could be more purely political than something that is apolitical but is made political because it is so offensive <laughs> to the authorities? You know, and this and this you no, know, this isn't a license just to sort of, you know, offend everybody yeah. all the time. You know, I do I get quite tired of you know, the inflation of offence in art, you know. I mean, you know, when Chris Ophelia put sort of, you know, excretion all over the Madonna not very interesting in my view. Mm. Um, so it's not, a, it's not that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, in fact, downright offensive in my view, but, but it, they were just doing something that the regime couldn't, couldn't stand aesthetically. Mm. So as you said, so rightly, yeah, the regime politicized it. Um, that actually, that makes me think of, um, and I want, I was looking forward to asking you about his music too, because I know it means a lot to you, but, uh, what, um, uh, Nash was saying, um, about you know what happened in Paris because the you know towards the conclude of your book you know you do um, you know revisit what happens what happened in Paris there that terrible ISIS attack but he was saying that the um, Battle Clan was music's Kristall uh, Notch and so uh, ISIS you can't you can't tolerate music you can't take music then in that case music must be doing something right but um, so it's clear also that uh, that Graham Nash's music meant a great deal to you, and I was wondering what was so special to you about Nash's music that you connected to it on such a, such a deep level. Um, it's a good question because he's you know he, he he's he's not always seen as up there in the pantheon, but yeah. I think he's one of the one of the very great songwriters. Yep. Um, well, first of all, he's very important to me, and and there is a. There's an extreme satisfaction in the fact that this book is published by the University of Chicago Press, because um, when Graham Nash sang, "Won't you please come to Chicago? No one else can take your place." I, aged oh, what have you, fifteen, mm -hmm. took that personally, and I started <laughs> saving director. up yep. my money. <laughs> The sixty-seven pounds required for the airfare in those days to go to Chicago, because I sort of had this idea that Chicago was where it was all happening. That's where I it had to be. I wanted to buy blues records that I couldn't get in England um, because I'd seen Sunhouse, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, and Bucker White, BB mm -hmm. King's uncle, mm -hmm. play at the end when I was thirteen. Um, and I thought, you know, I want more of this. <laughs> I want to get a record of this. And those were the days, obviously, long before. You know, there's no discogs. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. you, you had to go to the south side of Chicago and look for this stuff. Um, but also, I took, I took Graham Nash's, in, you know, as it were, invitation personally. And um, so that song is very important in my life, as is the fact that the Chicago University Press published his book. It sort of squares the circle. Fitting, but, yeah. but I think... But Nash has this wonderful idea of, of sort of what music is is for, and your thanks for, for invoking the 
his point about you know if, if the, 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 the you know the attack on the Bataclan um, by ISIS being a sort of crystal nacht. It's a pity that it was the Eagles of Death Metal, a pretty awful band. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, no, no, you know, it's a pity. Yeah. It's a pity it wasn't a band with rather more sort of peaceful views mm, than, mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, on that night. Yeah. But um, but you know, ISIS went uh, the, the, the killers and the gunmen weren't there uh, because of the views of Eagles of Death Metal. Mm. Um, they were there because because. They thought that people who were attending a rock and roll concert should be killed. Yep. Um, there's an extraordinary picture of the crowd taken from the stage about two minutes before the attack. And, you know, it's my kids. It's mm -hmm. my daughter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's everybody who wants to be at a rock and roll concert between yep. the age of 18 and 22 having a beer and smiling and looking mm -hmm. forward to the gig. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, I think sort of Nash got that. He gets, he gets what music is there for his response is his he he, he, he his, his songs are so spontaneous and sort of they're they're crystalline in their clarity you know he will write a song about going into a beautiful cathedral um uh, uh, seeing sort of dates that mean something in his life on a tombstone and having a slight panic over 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 the history of christianity yeah. you know which is quite a sort of you know, it's quite a complicated <laughs> series of events. It's wild um, how, can turn that into a song. how specific. Um, and you he's just, not afraid to be, sorry. Oh, no, no, please. Well, what I was saying, and it just, you know, kind of just to, to piggyback off what you were saying about that, that cathedral story, it's amazing how specific his songs are. And, you know, uh, you pointed out After the Dolphin is about uh, drone warfare and uh, Barrel of Pain is about uh, barrel bombs used in Syria. And it's really inspiring, um, yeah. you know, how he, he used these specific uh, uh, stories and then how, how he was really working towards using music as a force of change and you know in in your book he he says i think we can change the world and that music is a driving yeah. force towards that end um and i really want to ask and kind of bring it all home in a certain way you just after all you've seen all you've heard and and just what what are your thoughts about that um about music's role or ability to help change the world i i think you know, Nash thinks there's something mm. there. I certainly do. But I'm curious your thoughts on that. Sorry, I don't want to sound like a politician, but before I answer, of course, Nash does also have the last line in the book, which is in a way the only line it can end on. Uh -huh. When we're trying to figure out, and we have been for hours and hours, um, what is music doing? Yeah. Um, in a way, that's what the book is about. It starts off with Graham Nash sitting behind the Beatles at a Jimi Hendrix concert, and he asks himself, what on earth? is going on it's a very good question what is going on <laughs> that's what the book is about <laughs> but he has the last line when he when he sort of says well you know we've been trying we've been talking quite a few hours about this aren't we trying to figure it out what is going on um we haven't quite we haven't quite got there have we um tell you what are you free tomorrow you know? <laughs> and that's it you know? i mean that is the end of, that's the only way the book can end Definitely. because because we don't know it's an unknown yeah and, and he's wonderfully, he's wonderfully sort of honest about that. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, not not all rock stars are, are you know want want to carry on tomorrow. You know, mm -hmm. to, to keep trying to find out an answer to the unanswerable. Um, he thinks we can change the world, and he sings it in that song. And that's why I went to Chicago because I thought you could change the world, and I thought music was part of that. Um, I think it's a huge claim. Um, oh yeah, and I would never take it away from Graham Nash or anyone who believed it. 
Definitely. And I mean, the, it, it's I, I, kind of I'm, the intent is what's beautiful there. He really wants to give it a go. And he wrote what I, what I want to do with these songs yeah. is get little people to do big things. And that's, I yeah. think it's, I think it's like, I mean, my, my favorite character in well, recent literature is Dr. Bernard Rieu in Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does he try to cure a child dying of plague? Of course he does. Mm-hmm. Does the child die of plague? Well, Yes, <laughs> but does that stop him trying? No. 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 Um, you know, that's my credo as a journalist, and I think in a way, that's that that, that is a you know the noble credo of a musician who seeks to intervene in the ways of the world with song and melody and harmony and polyphony and the rest of it. Um, Verdi sought to change. The, the course of Italian history through his operas. Um, um, musicians have to think they can change the world um, if that's what they think, if that's what their songs are, are, are setting out to do. Do they? You know, I don't want to be the person to say, no, music cannot change the world. Do I think it alone can? Probably not. Um, but you know, bless the song that tries. Yeah. And um, and, um, and and um, you know, the day we stop trying to achieve things that we might not achieve would be a terrible day, would it not? And I think in the hands of the musicians, um, they can say things that can change the world that that no other that no other people can. Absolutely, it definitely feels part of it. Or if not, in the meantime, it is a. It's it's something soft to uh to you know kind of push us through some of these harder points and and acts as catharsis and and just uh, community and so many things that make the world a, a better and brighter place. That's absolutely. Sure. I mean, uh, turn your question upside down. Mm-hmm. You know, what if musicians didn't try and change the world? Yeah. My God, it would be a, you'd <laughs> be an even worse place than it is already. <laughs> question about I don't even want to imagine that world. It's. That's my ha- Absolutely. It's, it's so my happy place. So, right. So we'll go with Graham Nash and wish him well, <laughs> changing the world with his music. I'm sure he can. If anyone can, he, it's he, Graham he, Nash. If, if anyone, if anyone can, it is the musician. Right. Well, it, when he says we can change the world, I mean, what he means yeah. is um, what you do with the music will mm-hmm. change the world. Yep. Yep. Not, not music itself. It's and 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 you know, may the gods, may the gods and goddesses bless them in their endeavor. Well, um, and I have to say, uh, I agree with Nash's uh, bandmate and your friend, Mick. Uh, I think you are a very brave man. Uh, your inquisitive nature is super inspiring. I love when you were talking about what happened in Berlin when the wall fell and you just had to be there. I love that. Uh, your love of music inspires me as well. And this book, it was really something. It, I, I've learned a lot. Uh, like, like, like I started out with, it was, it was a wild, fun, informative journey to uh to go on so thank you so much for taking the time to discuss well thank you things. michael well thank you no thank you for your interest and for, and for getting through the mess i mean um, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful well, mess. well done for getting to the end <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful mess i'm going to be recommended to people um time and again because there's there's so much to take away from it for real thank you
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.